Welcome to the next great podcast. iHeartRadio's talent scouts have been on the hunt for the freshest, funniest, and most compelling voices out there. We've sifted through thousands of incredible entries, and now we're giving 10 lucky teams the chance to impress you. To help us crown the next great podcast, listen to these 10 pilots and then vote for your favorite at thenextgreatpodcast.com. Today, for your consideration, we present The Servant Girl Annihilator by Shannon McGarvey. This is a fascinating pitch at the intersection of history and true crime about a dark chapter of Texas history that most of us weren't familiar with. The investigation into these unsolved murders would make for a compelling story in its own right, but we like that Shannon takes a much more thoughtful approach to the true crime genre, using the mystery as a vehicle for exploring bigger systemic issues, in this case, racial and economic inequality. So, without further ado, we present The Servant Girl Annihilator. Help me! In the freezing early morning hours of December 31st, 1884, a young black man named Walter Spencer frantically knocks at the door of the stately Austin, Texas residence of white insurance salesman Walter K. Hall, who is out of town, but whose visiting brother-in-law, Tom Chalmers, sleeps inside. Help me! Chalmers hears the man at the front door, but does not stir, until from down the hall, he hears the front door open. Chalmers leaps out of bed and carefully moves toward the bedroom door where he sees the shadowy figure of a man staggering down the long hallway toward him. Mr. Tom, for God's sake, do something to help me. Somebody's nearly killed me. Chalmers scrambles to find a match. He strikes a light and holds it in front of him illuminating the bloody face of Walter Spencer. Spencer was a 29-year-old laborer at the nearby Butler's Brickyard and also the boyfriend of Molly Smith, a 23-year-old woman of mixed race who had recently begun working as a servant for the Hall family in exchange for a monthly salary and room and board. She lived behind the family mansion in a dilapidated one-room shack which she shared with Spencer. Molly's gone. I can't find her. The blood is pouring down Spencer's face from a puncture wound under his eye, which has fractured his orbital bone. He tells Chalmers that he'd woken wounded and disoriented to find the contents of their room virtually destroyed, and Molly, who had fallen asleep next to him, was nowhere in sight. He says he searched for her around their quarters in the frigid black of the night before rounding the front of the home and waking Chalmers. Thomas Chalmers, mind you, is a white man in 1880s Austin. He tells Walter Spencer to go to the doctor nearby for help, and he doesn't even bother to look for Molly Smith. That's Lauren Henley, an assistant professor of leadership studies at the University of Richmond. She's a trained historian who studies Black women who are the victims of or perpetrators of violent crime. She researched the servant girl murders while doing her graduate work at UT Austin. It's not until 9 a.m. the next morning that a neighbor's servant, who also happens to be Black, notices a strange object in the Hall family yard. And that object turns out to be 
Molly Smith's body. The mutilated, half-naked body of Molly Smith was found behind the hall residence by an outhouse in the alley. Her head was split open, and she had been stabbed repeatedly in the stomach and chest. The police are summoned to the scene, and William Howe, who was usually just a patrolman, responds. He's so disturbed by what he sees that he calls for backup, and John Chainville arrived with two bloodhounds, and yet the bloodhounds couldn't find a scent. There was simply too much blood around for them to pick up anything. No one in Austin, not its ill-equipped police force, nor its fleet of hardened newspaper men, was prepared for the scourge of gruesome serial murders that were to follow. By the end of 1885, eight people, four Black servants, one 11-year-old girl, a Black laborer, and two white women would be dead. Five more people would be seriously injured in the attempted attacks. The citizens of Austin will be driven into helpless paranoia. The city's race relations will be totally upended. And worst of all, the murders will remain forever unsolved. Three years before Jack the Ripper prowled the darkened streets of London, mutilating sex workers in the back alleys of the East End, a serial killer wreaked year-long havoc on Texas's state capital of Austin. Over the course of the next eight episodes, through expert interviews, oral recreations, and historical analysis, we'll explore a world of murder, racism, and martial law inside America's first serial killer case. I'm your host, Shannon McGarvey. I'm a writer, television producer, and longtime resident of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the pilot of the Servant Girl Annihilator podcast as part of the next great podcast competition from iHeartRadio and Tongle. In late 1884, Austin was a town on the edge of modernity with over 12,000 residents, an opera house, three universities, a public school system, and plans for a new state capitol building. Just 13 years earlier, the central Texas hamlet, nestled at a bend in the Colorado, had seen the arrival of the railroad and then construction of a permanent bridge connecting both sides of the river. The railroad came through in the 1870s and totally transformed the economy of the region. Cotton and cattle were grown and supported in the rural areas around Austin. The state university had just opened. People were doing things. The city was teeming. Austin was now on the rise as a center of Texas commerce, education, culture, and politics. But not everyone could keep up with the economic boom. For starters, the city's police force was pitifully understaffed with only 12 men, approximately one officer for every 1,000 residents. At night, only four officers worked the streets. The city's Black residents comprised nearly a third of its population, but held only a tiny fraction of its wealth. Austin, like many other Southern cities after the Civil War, just saw a massive, massive influx of people. And a lot of these people happened to be African-Americans. They were now freed men and women who were looking for family members or new jobs, opportunities to move away from what was otherwise a really brutal system. And so they ended up in urban centers like Austin, and they realized that they weren't actually afforded the opportunities that they thought. 
racism, segregation, sexism were all deeply, deeply entrenched in these cities. My name is Kimberly Keaton. I am the African-American community archivist and librarian at the Austin History Center. African-Americans in Austin, I wouldn't say it was like upward mobility. However, they had an opportunity to once again create their own lives in the midst of chaos, in the midst of still fighting for their freedom, in the midst of being tenant farmers. Although there was some affluence within Austin's African-American community at the time, many worked for next to nothing as laborers and servants for the city's wealthy white families. So even though Black folks made up about 20% of Austin's population, they were by and large relegated to the city's underclass, doing domestic work, doing hard manual labor, and not being allowed to really partake of all of the new, innovative things going on in a city as prosperous as Austin. Black people started their own schools, they had their own banks, grocery stores. And in that time frame where Black people are becoming self-sufficient, owning their own things, you know, it's still separate, not equal, but separate. After the end of the American Civil War, Black Texans, like many Black Southerners, struggled to earn a living wage amid a chronic lack of access to education, near-constant threats of violence, unimaginable prejudice, and laws called Black Codes meant to mimic the conditions of slavery and perpetuate the cycle of poverty within the community. We're talking about plantation mentality still in Texas. You know, if a Black person runs away, you got the right to go back and get them and drag them back to your land and beat them and continuously tell them they're nothing and that they're going to work for you for the rest of your life. And Black codes, you know, that's the whole emergence of lynching, that phrase, Black codes. It's laws to reestablish supremacy. In Austin... The legacy of enslavement lived on in servants' quarters and shanty houses that dotted the alleys of white neighborhoods across the city. What's very interesting about Texas being that we are in the Southwest because I tell people where this is the contemporary South. This is not Alabama. We do not think like Alabamians or, you know, Tennesseans, you know, Mississippians. That was King Cotton back in the day. So was Texas. It was a direct connection of slavery in It was all about economics at the end of the day. Economics and land. And, you know, all these little southern states played a major role in Austin's history. I would say it's always been a racist place. The Daily Statesman, the city's largest newspaper, regularly published complaints about the city's Black population, specifically younger Black men who were perceived to be less respectful of white people due to never experiencing enslavement. Consequently, Austin's young Black men were regularly accused of criminal acts and mischiefs that they did not commit. Many times, if not almost all the time, the only thing these men were guilty of was being young and Black.
29-year-old Walter Spencer, the boyfriend of Molly Smith, was the first suspect in her death. But those who knew Spencer, either from his work as a laborer at the brickyard or in his interactions with Molly, couldn't believe he could commit such a gruesome and heinous act. We don't know too much about their relationship other than the fact that when Molly moved to Austin, she sought out domestic employment at a couple of places. And somewhere in her searching around Austin, she met Walter Spencer and he became her partner, her boyfriend, her lover, and was well known to be around her at work. By all accounts, Molly Smith and Walter Spencer had a peaceful, loving relationship. Acquaintances of the couple claim Walter was kind and gentle with Molly and generally did everything she requested. Even Tom Chalmers, who barely knew Walter, told police that he appeared sincerely concerned about Molly's whereabouts. And besides, why would a black man risk his life by entering the home of a white man, unannounced, in the middle of the night, if there wasn't a real emergency? When Walter Spencer shows up to wake up Thomas Chalmers in the pitch black of night, we have to understand that this is terribly, terribly dangerous for a black man to wake up a white man in a startled manner. Walter Spencer was risking his life by waking up Thomas Chalmers, and yet he does it anyway. Walter Spencer had no criminal record, aside from a one-time arrest for disturbing the peace a few years back. In fact, the only time anyone could recall Walter ever getting close to a physical altercation was a few months earlier, at the hands of a man named William Lim Brooks, Molly's ex-boyfriend. William Lem Brooks was Molly's boyfriend or partner when she lived in Waco. And maybe he followed her to Austin. Maybe it's just coincidence that they both ended up in Austin at the same time. Lem and Molly had met in Waco, a cotton town about 100 miles north of Austin, and became romantically involved as teenagers. Molly Smith was born to enslaved parents in Virginia, though she herself was born into freedom. And somehow, she ended up in Waco as a child. By the time she was in her 20s, she had a young son named George, and she worked for a middle-class white family in Waco with the last name Rogers. At some point, George died from an untreated disease, and Molly left Waco, and she headed south to Austin. And then one night, Molly was out with Walter, and the couple ran into Lem Brooks, who tried to pick a fight with Walter. When news of this altercation spread to Sergeant John Chineville, one of Austin's most senior and hardened beat cops, he and his officers went looking for Brooks. When Molly Smith was murdered, immediately the police turned to William Lem Brooks. It seemed possible that this was maybe a love triangle gone horribly awry that ended in the death of Molly Smith. This is, after all, a late 19th century Southern city, and therefore racial prejudice and biases are going to play in dramatically into who the police believed were capable of this murder. As far as they were concerned, he was the only viable suspect, the only person with a real motive to hurt Walter and murder Molly. But there was only one problem with that. At the time of Molly's death, Lim Brooks had been two miles away calling dance numbers at a black meeting hall on the city's east side until 4 a.m. He had witnesses, lots of them, and an airtight alibi. Even still, the police arrested him on suspicion of murder. Suspicion of murder is a really unique historical charge 
that is not the same thing as being charged with murder. So it is an interesting, nuanced difference that really allowed the police to apprehend anybody who they had a slight sensation might have possibly been tangentially involved in the murders and basically hold them without recourse for as long as they wanted. Not surprisingly, given the context of the murders, they overwhelmingly arrested Black men. Limbrook stayed in jail for an entire month despite lack of evidence while police futilely tried to link him to the crime. The field of criminology did not exist yet in the United States. In fact, the idea of fingerprinting wouldn't exist for another at least one generation and doesn't actually exist as a usable forensic tool for another two generations. So this means that Austin's police force is already struggling with the ability to solve anything other than a simple, basic murder. And serial murder is notoriously difficult. Meanwhile, Molly Smith was buried in the colored section of Austin's city cemetery, which is now known as Oakwood Cemetery, on a frigid day in early January. Is the oldest publicly owned cemetery in Austin, and it has a history of racial segregation. And so Black bodies in Oakwood are buried in the least desirable part of the cemetery, parts that typically flood or are prone to deterioration, whereas the white part of the cemetery is higher up, more elevated, more maintained, and less likely to be ravaged by the trauma of time. And so I think it's really telling that Molly Smith lived her life as a part of Austin's underclass and unfortunately is buried in a physical space that is a reminder of Austin's underclass. The cemetery sexton, an elderly man in charge of cataloging burials, listed Molly's cause of death as a broken skull. The full truth of her passing must have felt altogether unimportant. And besides, who really knew what happened to her that night? As far as the city's white citizens were concerned, it was a black issue. And to the black citizens, it was just another inexplicable loss in a long line of losing. Austin, like other cities, responds to the death of Molly Smith as a singular isolated event. The first person killed by a serial killer is never known to be the victim of a serial killer. That's kind of the point of a serial killer. They need time in order to engage in their behaviors. And so what we have is an interesting moment in which Molly Smith is killed and then the city kind of goes quiet. The police think that they have this under control in their weird way. But soon, in only a matter of weeks, a series of strange events would begin to unfold. There are plenty of non-fatal attacks in which servant girls are spooked, ranging from throwing rocks at windows to trying to open doors, things that just kind of put them on edge, but they're not murdered. And then... Without warning, the killer strikes again, and then again, putting the entire city on edge and sending both communities into a downward spiral of helpless, frenzied paranoia. Paranoia. 